Is there life anywhere else in the universe? At this point, the probability that Earth is the only planet in the universe with life is as unimaginably small as the universe is unimaginably huge. The idea that we're alone must be a vestige of the idea that our planet is the center of the universe and our sun revolves around us. And there's a great big white man with a beard who sits in a chair somewhere up there and plays with us little humans like we're action figures. Like I did with my dolls and G.I. Joes. Cut off all their hair and made them scissor. Anyway... Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who started this podcast a couple years ago not believing in alien abductions, and I'm now not so sure. It's one thing to believe we're not alone out here, and quite another to believe that whoever or whatever is out there is visiting us and plucking us up randomly to put stuff up our butts and plop us back down with a healthy dose of shock that will inevitably be followed by mockery and humiliation if we try to tell anyone about it. And frankly, usually the people who claim they got abducted are not the most reliable narrators, and one can't help but wonder why the aliens seem disinterested in probing some of Earth's brightest and most interesting subjects. At the risk of stereotyping, people who insist they were taken by little green men don't tend to be MIT graduates. And before you fire up the old angry DM machine, I'm not suggesting these people are stupid. I'm just saying that they tend to be people who perhaps haven't been afforded the opportunities in life that could lead to MIT. Maybe that's the point. Maybe the biggest mystery about humans the aliens are trying to figure out is why we believe that only certain kinds of people are worthy of the opportunities that would help them lead a happy and fulfilling life that isn't dominated by making just enough money to get by. Anyway. Today, we'll meet four men who weren't the typical kind to run around claiming to have been abducted by aliens. Four men who went out for a quiet evening of canoeing in the woods of Maine and found their lives forever changed. In the summer of 1976, while the country was celebrating its bicentennial summer by doing the hustle in their bell-bottoms, identical twins Jack and Jim Weiner and their friends Charlie Foltz and Chuck Rack, four students from Massachusetts College of Art and Design, set out on a planned two-week wilderness trek on Mount Katahdin and around the Allagash Wilderness Waterway in Maine. Now, I know that just last week I was like, ick, the wilderness. And while generally I do feel that way, I will say that I can only imagine the backcountry in Maine in the mid-70s before iPhones and Bluetooth speakers and tricked-out RVs blasting the Boston Red Sox game while mouth-breathing dudes chug Miller High Life and make off-color jokes does indeed sound like a dream. Or at least if I were one of four dudes, it would sound like a dream. If I were me and three women alone out in the wilderness, we might as well have a target over our heads that reads, easy pickings. But for these four dudes, it probably was a dream. On the evening of August 24th, four days into their adventure, Jack, Jim, Charlie, and Chuck were camping at the Mudbrook campsite. At some point, they noticed a light in the eastern sky, much brighter than the stars around it. 
Jim grabbed his binoculars for a closer look and said it didn't look like a star, but some kind of bright object hovering only about 200 feet or so above the tree line. And before the guys could glean much else, the light, whatever it was, blinked out and was gone. According to a 1998 piece in the Bangor Daily News, the men, quote, forgot about it, end quote. But in a 1995 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Jim said, It was just floating above the treetops, didn't seem to be moving in any direction. And I looked at it through the binoculars for maybe 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and it suddenly just winked out from the outside edges inward. I mean, it literally just went boop like that and it was gone. There was something about this thing that left me with an odd feeling that wasn't quite right. But I didn't really dwell on it. Not something you necessarily shrug off, but life goes on. What would happen to the men two nights later, however, would stick with them in one way or another for the rest of their lives. A couple days later, on August 26th, the men spent the day fishing on Eagle Lake, catching what the Brattleboro reformer referred to in a piece from 1993 as trash fish, which I guess means fish that aren't good enough to eat. I'm sure said trash fish were down there referring to the people who put hooks through their faces and then deem them unworthy to eat as trash humans. Anyway, Having only caught useless fish, ugh, why did God even make these stupid trash fish? The men thought they might have more luck at night. I don't know. I guess the classier fish come out at night? So that night, the men set out from the beach near their campsite for better fishing. There was no moon, which is apparently also better for fishing. It was so dark that night that the men built a bonfire on the beach as a beacon to guide them back to their campsite when they were done. They built a big enough fire so that it would burn for about four hours. Plenty of time. The darkness, along with the uncommon stillness of the night, made Chuck later recall there was an eerie feeling in the air. The lake, he said, looked primordial, with dead trees jutting up from below the surface. And it was in that creepy setting, out on the lake in the canoe, after they'd only just paddled out from shore, that Chuck said he got the feeling he was being watched. He told the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, UFO Journal, I turned toward the direction from where I felt this and saw a large, bright sphere of colored light hovering, motionless and soundless, about 200 to 300 feet above the southeastern rim of the cove. Chuck yelled for the other three to look, and once their eyes adjusted to how bright this thing was, they could see it was kind of pulsing. According to MUFON, quote, as if there were pathways of energy flowing equatorial and longitudinally from pole to pole. This divided the sphere into four oscillating quadrants of bright colored light. The color changes were very liquid and enveloping, as if the entire object had a plasmatic motion to it, like a thick sauce does as it starts a rolling boil, end quote. Or, as Jim described it to Unsolved Mysteries, It had this rolling effect to it, like a miniature sun, very, very bright. It lit the treetops up like daylight, and it was absolutely silent. The thing was so big, about 80 feet across, that the men doubted it could be written off as swamp gas or a weather balloon. 
the two most popular things the government liked to blame these kinds of sightings on at the time. So then, the men made what I think is the world's most bananas decision that has ever possibly been made in the history of bananas decisions. Charlie, who was a Navy veteran, decided to use his flashlight to send a Morse code message to the thing. What, do you suppose, was the message the men decided to flash to a weird, pulsating, miniature sun-like thing hanging pretty close by in the sky? Like maybe, hey there, what's up? We're friendly. We're just out here trying to catch some non-trash fish. (laughs) How about you? You're not like up there trying to catch some non-trash humans, right? Because if so, we are definitely trash humans. Friendly, non-threatening trash humans who will be more than happy to paddle back to shore and pretend this whole thing never happened if that would make you happy. No, that's not what they signaled. Not even a we're friendly. Nope. What they flashed was SOS. SOS, the universal code for help. Actually, in this context, universal is expressly not the right word. I'm willing to stretch the limits of my understanding to believe that there's intelligent life out there, sure. But something tells me if they can reach this far away from wherever they came from, they have a better system of sending out a distress signal than some dots and dashes, you know? So not the universal code, but the earthly-versal code, which is a word I just made up, but will probably be adopted when the aliens do make definitive contact with us sometime in the next couple decades. At any rate, they essentially signaled help to an unknown, floating, glowing, silent orb thing. And who knows how the series of illuminated flashes were interpreted by whoever or whatever was piloting this thing. What we do know, at least according to the accounts of the four men, is that instantly the orb came to a complete stop and just as quickly as Mufon tells it, quote, a tube-shaped beam of light erupted from the object and hit the water. A glowing ring with a dark center reflected on the water's surface, indicating that the beam was hollow. The object and its beam of light began moving toward the canoe, end quote. The beam of light swept over the water like a searchlight. The men, understandably freaked out, started paddling as fast as they could away from the thing and back toward their bonfire beacon on the shore, with two of the men using their bare hands as paddles. The next thing the men knew, according to the Bangor Daily News, their canoe was gently sliding onto shore. Though the way Unsolved Mysteries tells it, the next thing they became aware of, after the frantic paddling, was already being on shore and staring up at the glowing orb. Jim told Unsolved Mysteries, I remember thinking, well, I could pick up a stone and bounce it off this thing's side. That's how close it was. And then, all of a sudden, it just streaked away very, very fast, and within a few seconds, it was like a star. Just another light in the sky. And Chuck recalled that none of them seemed panicked at all, but they did all feel very relaxed. More than relaxed, they felt completely depleted, like they'd run a marathon. They all just quietly made for camp. And that was when they noticed their bonfire had burned down to coals. Jim said they couldn't have been out on the water more than 15 or 20 minutes and that the fire should have lasted about four hours. 
It's not like it was extinguished. It looked as though it had burned through all its wood and was now just glowing embers. Jim later recalled, The unusual thing is that we didn't stay up for hours and discuss this thing, which is what you think four young guys on a camping trip would do. We just seemed very fatigued and wanted to go to bed. The next morning, we got up and got our camp together and paddled to the next campsite. It wasn't until the next day that the men even mentioned the glowing orb and the beam of light to each other. And when they found a park ranger to tell, the ranger told them that the light they saw was probably the nearby hardware store that had been celebrating a grand opening with a big searchlight on the back of a pickup truck. Sure, four men mistook a light from the back of a pickup truck 75 miles away as a pulsating mini sun-like orb with a beam of light racing toward them over the water. Okay. After their fateful canoe trip, where they probably just saw a pickup truck with a light on the back of it that was 75 miles away, floating in the sky, and then come racing toward them, dot, 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 the four men simply went on with their lives. There's not much information about their lives. It seems they all went off and did normal stuff. Finished school, got married, probably shaved those unfortunate 1970s-style mustaches they probably had, and eventually transitioned into some new unfortunate 80s-style haircuts instead. They continued to discuss the weird events from their camping trip, but it was always just the weird light in the sky and the very bizarre incident in the canoe. But then, in 1988, Jim began receiving treatments for seizures that had started a decade before in 1978 when he sustained a head injury. In addition to the seizures, Jim experienced irregularities in his parasympathetic system. Things like body temperature dysregulation, smelling things that weren't there, increased heart rate, and more interestingly, displacement or confusion about immediate time. His doctors asked him if there might be anything else unusual he was experiencing that might have been caused by the head injury. According to the MUFON UFO journal, Jim claimed he and the three other men experienced, quote, awakening at night to see strange creatures, levitation from the bed, and temporary paralysis while something was done to the genitals, end quote. As a guest on the Joan Rivers show in 1993, Jim said... At that time, I was having these bedroom experiences where I would wake up at night and there was something in my bedroom that was trying to pull the covers off the bed. I could feel them trying to pull me out of bed. I would be either totally or partially paralyzed. I would hear a voice next to my ear that sounded like something was trying to talk to me, but I could never understand what it was. I don't know about you, stranger, but this sounds an awful lot like sleep paralysis, no? Then there's Jim's brother Jack, who was also experiencing strange dreams. He told Unsolved Mysteries, I was starting to have nightmares, really terrible nightmares that I could not explain. I found myself in a very brightly lit room. I had no idea where I was or why I was there. To my left, I could see my brother Jim, Chuck Rack, and Charlie Fultz sitting on some type of bench. They were all naked. I was wondering why they weren't helping me, because I felt like I was in danger. And 
While I'm trying to figure this out, I notice this figure, or, or a dark, shadowy-type figure emerging from this light, uh, this bright light in front of me. I, I would wake up uh, sweating and breathing heavily and just in a, a state of terror and shock. Jim's psychiatrist, who specialized in temporal limbic epilepsy after some head-scratching, apparently told Jim there was a UFO convention in town and that a guy named Ray Fowler, who was the head of MUFON, would be there. To be clear, it seems like Jim's psychiatrist was like, look, buddy, this shit is above my pay grade. Maybe go talk to this UFO guy? Could you imagine? I mean, could you imagine? I don't know whether I would be impressed or immediately start looking for a different psychiatrist. Never once in all my years of personally having sleep paralysis has a doctor ever said, maybe you were abducted by aliens. Not once. And if I was abducted by aliens, please come back and pick me up. I'm ready to get off this spinning ball of madness. Thank you. So Jim got hooked up with Ray Fowler, who decided that his tale warranted a, quote, careful and meticulous, end quote, formal investigation, which he conducted over two years with MUFON investigator and CE3 slash 4 specialist? No, I don't know what that means. And solar physicist David Webb and with MUFON consultant Anthony Tony Constantino, professional hypnotist. Are you being haunted by specters or ghosts? Having trouble sleeping? Finding yourself paralyzed at night? Unable to move while the aliens have their way with you? Call me, Tony Constantino, professional hypnotist. I swear, it's a real job. It seems to me the entire quote-unquote investigation consisted solely of hypnosis sessions. I mean, there were some background and character checks, but other than that, there didn't seem to be any checking of any potential hard evidence like nearby flight paths or military training exercises, or even a call into the local hot air balloon company to see if maybe someone had a simple explanation for what the hell these guys had seen that night other than the magic spotlight pickup truck 75 miles away, of course. Fowler's suspicion was that whatever happened between the moment the beam of light came racing toward them over the water and when they found themselves safely back on shore where their bonfire was burnt down to embers was what needed to be sussed out of the men. And so the men underwent months of rigorous hypnosis treatment. They were instructed not to speak to each other in between sessions about what memories were being drawn out during hypnosis. And it was under that hypnosis that a very harrowing tale began to unfold. Piece by piece, Fowler gleaned that when the beam of light hit the canoe, the men were sucked up into it like dust bunnies in a vacuum cleaner and deposited into a cold, sterile-looking room, presumably on the glowing orb thing the men had seen in the sky. There were humanoid creatures who must have been using some kind of telepathy to control the men because they claimed they couldn't resist or fight back. Under hypnosis, Jack said, they're right there. Their face is right in my face. I don't know why. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what they want. They're saying things. In my head they're saying, don't be afraid. They say, do what we say. Just do what we say. 
The men were made to undress and sit on what they described as a plastic-like bench and were subjected to what sounds like a pretty basic medical exam. The aliens looked in their mouths and eyes with what the MUFON article described as, quote, a pencil-sized rod with a light on its tip, end quote. In other words, a pen light. Just a pen light. Everyone calm down. After the aliens were basically like, say, ah, they put the men in harnesses and flexed their arms and legs in what sounds like an overcomplicated way of checking their reflexes. Maybe the aliens hadn't yet invented the little rubber hammer thingy. And then, one by one, the men were made to lie on an exam table and were gone over with various instruments. Under hypnosis, Charlie said, It's like a doctor's office. I get that. It's cold, like a doctor's office is cold. They put the panel over your chest, and they scrape your arms and your chest, your legs and thighs. We shouldn't be here. I just... I just keep thinking. I want to be back in the canoe. And Chuck described watching Charlie on the table. I see some sort of device on him. They've got, uh... This looks like a silvery. It looks like the like it's got curves on it. It's almost like like it sucks something. He's got his head tipped way back. It's almost like he's in pain. We're we can't help him. All we can do is watch him. They claimed samples were taken from each man of skin, saliva, blood, feces, urine, and semen. Though it seems, confusingly, no hair samples were taken, which to me seems like one of the most obvious things the aliens might want to take. Like, what is the one major thing all drawings of aliens lack? Hair. You'd think that would be the first thing they'd want to figure out. You'd think aliens would generally be fascinated with human hair. Or maybe aliens are just strong believers that bald is beautiful, in which case I highly recommend they don't cross paths with Chris Rock. The story continued. After the alien examinations, the men were made to dress and enter a room with a round portal in one of its walls. As the men passed through the portal, they reported feeling a strange sensation come over their bodies as they floated down to their canoe, which had moved from the middle of the lake to the shore near their campsite. The beam of light seemed to hold the canoe steady as each man was gently placed back in the same place he'd been plucked up from. And their ordeal that night was over. Later, Jack revealed that in 1989, right in the middle of the time of the two-year hypnosis investigation, he and his wife had shared an experience which presumably he could also only remember under hypnosis. Under hypnosis, Jack said, It's blue. A blue light, and I think, that's funny. That's not the moon. And then I go to the window, and I look out the window, and what I see is amazing. I see a big, bright light, and it's right over the truck in the field outside the house. And I'm thinking, oh my god, I can't believe that. And so I say, Mary, get up, get up and look. And I run to the door, and I go out the door, and I'm running toward the light up in the field. Then I see the dog running alongside me, and so I pick him up and run back to the house. The light is still there, and it's moving. And then I put the dog back in bed, and I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this now. 
I don't want to look at the light. So I'm going back to bed, and I'm thinking, I don't want to deal with this now. Why are they here now? And I'm scared. So I pull the covers over my head, and Mary's next to me. And then I know, I know that something's in the house. I just know that they're there, and I'm under the covers, and I think, oh God, oh God, why are they here now? I don't want this to happen. And then the covers move, and I feel something on the cover. And then the covers are down, and I'm looking there, and I was right. They're right there. Oh God, they're right there, right next to my bed. It has big eyes and a big head and it's dark and there's light behind it coming in the door and it's just taking the covers away and I don't want to look at it and I look at Mary and there's another one and then it's next to Mary and I wish I could do something but I can't. I have to do what they want and the light is out there and they want me to go out there. They're lifting me. Mary's standing and they're making us move toward the light and the dog isn't doing anything. We're through the door. We walk up the lawn and I feel like I'm floating. Our feet are on the ground, but my feet are not doing what I want them to. Fowler also reported that Jack had showed some unusual physical injuries, including burns on the bottoms of his feet and a scar on his ankle above where a lump had appeared overnight. When the lump was biopsied, Fowler claimed pathologists couldn't find out what it was, so Jack was told it was being sent to the CDC in Atlanta for examination. But Fowler said that they looked into it and discovered that it had actually been sent to military pathologists in D.C., where an Air Force colonel examined it. I don't know what kind of proof Fowler had to back up this claim. According to Fowler, quote, attempts for further information about the anomalous lump were thwarted as the surgeon would not cooperate with our inquiry, end quote. Not only that, but twins Jack and Jim Weiner also revealed under hypnosis that they'd also been visited by aliens previously when they were both young kids. So maybe this is some kind of pattern here? If you're marked for experimentation, it might be for life? Perhaps some of us are subjects in an intergalactic biological study, and the alien scientists return to the same subjects again and again. In 1993, Ray Fowler published his book, The Allagash Abductions, Undeniable Evidence of Alien Intervention. And the men were now subjected to a new kind of invasive probing, interviews with the media. Come on, that was a pretty good line. In addition to newspaper interviews, the men, now dubbed the Allagash Four, were featured on Unsolved Mysteries and the Joan Rivers Show, which Jack called, quote, a very bizarre interview, unquote. Because, let's face it, Joan Rivers was pretty bizarre. Fowler said one of the reasons the story was so credible was because the men exhibited typical benchmark characteristics of other abductees, which is, again, a pretty stretchy statement. In order to make this statement as fact, one has to also just decide to believe other abductees. In a 2013 article for the Portland Press-Herald titled Unafraid of Alienating Themselves... 
Journalist Matt Byrne calls this case, quote, among the most substantiated in the U.S., end quote. And Fowler's evidence that the case is undeniable, as his book title claims, is that he, quote, conducted witness background checks, examined medical records and diaries, cross-checked witness testimony, coordinated witness psychological profile tests, correlated witness accounts with other reports, and conducted 15 hypnosis sessions over a period of 14 months. The final 10-volume report numbered over 700 pages, end quote. And apparently the men took polygraphs, three of which passed and one which was inconclusive. Some people also point to the drawings the men made under hypnosis of their experience as further evidence that it really happened. But here's the thing. None of that is proof. Sure, the men were told not to talk about the incident or the hypnosis sessions with each other, but that doesn't mean they didn't or that they hadn't actually spent the previous seven years cooking the whole thing up. And sure, their drawings, which we'll put up on our socials, looked similar to each other, but... If I asked you to draw aliens and an alien exam room, your drawings would probably also look similar. We all have roughly the same images in our heads from the countless images we've seen in movies and on TV. And everyone knows a polygraph is about as reliable at catching lies as Alex Jones is at not telling them. And not for nothing, but art students are kind of known for doing weird art projects. Remember the RISD student who built the secret apartment in the Providence Place Mall? A group of artists started a joke in the 60s about being offended that animals walk around naked, and people took them so seriously that they wound up on talk shows and in the news and got angry letters from people who could not believe you would suggest a horse wear a dress. The Church of Satan was started as a kind of art project, for crying out loud. Who's to say the so-called Allagash Four weren't pulling some long-con type of living art installment? And the men certainly understand the skepticism. Jack told the Bangor Daily News, This was the 1970s, so the reaction from others was to ask what we were smoking, drinking, or dropping. It's hard for people to understand, but I don't blame them. If someone told me a story like that, I'd say, show me a picture. Give me some physical evidence. He went on to say that he would love to go into more detail about their experience, but wouldn't you know it, Paramount Pictures was hinting at some kind of movie deal, and the men had been advised to clam up. But aside from the possible movie deal, which clearly ended up not happening, there didn't seem to be much potential financial gain from the story. And while Jack, Jim, and Charlie have pointed to that as further evidence that they were telling the truth, as in, why would we lie about this, we stand to gain nothing, Chuck Rack, for his part, split off from the other three pretty soon after Fowler's book came out. In September of 2016, he gave an interview to the Fiddlehead Focus, which is an actual name of a newspaper out of Madawaska, Maine, in which he said the men had made up the abduction in the hopes of cashing in. He maintained that he saw the glowing orb thing both nights, but that the story of being beamed up and examined was a fabrication. He said, The reason I supported the story at first was because I wanted to make money. We were compelled to stay together, all speculating that this thing could go into the millions of dollars. For each of us, we made very little. 
He doesn't accuse his former friends of pulling a hoax, but does think they were all given some pretty heavy pre-hypnosis suggestions that drew out the story the researchers wanted to hear. But what about the bonfire that was supposed to have lasted four hours? Rack said, It certainly was a big fire. I'll agree with that. Those logs were maybe three inches. Some of them could have been almost three and a half inches. That's the biggest they could have been. And most of them were smaller. And as such, in that condition, those pieces of wood would have burned off very quickly. He also claims the men were stoned the night they went out onto the lake, which the other three vehemently deny. Charlie Fultz told the Fiddlehead Focus... We bought an eight-pack of beer in Millinocket when we bought all of our supplies for the canoe trip. We each had one beer at Tellus Landing the very first night, and we each had one beer at Fort Kent the last day of our canoe trip. We carried those eight bottles in, and we carried those eight bottles back out. And I will say, as someone who has gone on week- and two-week hiking trips, when I was little, again, not something I would even entertain for a second today... There's not much room to carry a lot of extra stuff, but a bag of hash isn't exactly heavy. So they may not have been chugging cases of Miller High Life, but they could easily have been smoking the wacky tobacco. To be fair, though, hash doesn't usually cause hallucinations. It can, however, make for an evening of, hey man, what if we claim we got abducted? I mean, hey, it was the 70s. But Jim told the fiddlehead... Charlie Fultz and I were visiting Jack and his wife Mary at their home in Vermont. One morning, Mr. Rack arrived at the house and declared he had a plan to make a million dollars on the Allagash case. His proposal was that all four of us refute the professional handling of the case by uh, Raymond Fowler, Tony Castatino, and MUFO and thereby creating controversy, which was, in Mr. Rack's mind, exactly what the media and the public crave and pay for. In response to his proposal, Jack, Charlie, and I all voiced our disgust with his ethics and his proposal and announced our unanimous decision to have no further interaction with him regarding future Allagash projects. Well, unfortunately, we later forgave his inebriated indiscretion and appeared together on a couple of TV projects and, and UFO conferences, but it was glaringly clear to Jack, Charlie, and I that Mr. Rack's behavior was becoming increasingly pathological. I personally believe that Mr. Rack's self-aggrandizing rationalizations and disparaging accusations are simply the rantings of an angry and resentful individual on whom his former friends have turned their backs. Charlie Foltz, for his part, called Chuck Rack a, quote, loose cannon and a mental disaster area, end quote. Yikes. Even Ray Fowler chimed in, claiming Chuck wasn't a good hypnosis subject because, quote, he is the type of person who needs to be in control. He was not happy not being able to have detailed recall of the abduction portion of the incident. Thus, several years after the investigation, he claimed that no one was abducted, end quote. And there it is. All this spooky-ooky talk of alien abductions and hypnosis, and ultimately, we're left with a bunch of old college buddies pointing fingers and calling each other names. So, basically, any college reunion in an election year. But at the end of the day, this is a case of he said, they said. We could not contact the aliens in question for comment, so you will have to draw your own conclusions, stranger. 
Next time on Strange and Unexplained, centuries before David Bowie and Mick Jagger commanded people to go dancing in the streets, hundreds of people suddenly and inexplicably did just that, unable to control themselves or to stop. Some of them danced themselves right to death. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, with research by Jess McKellop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Marquise Filson, Luther Creek, and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but if there's a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash Focus on the Family. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod and check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. 